United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. I've just wrapped up a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, the latest Halifax International Security Forum's and annual event. And they've talked about the year ahead. Our guest is Nancy Lindborg. Nancy is United States Institute of Peace president and CEO. And she has been writing about the revolutions of our time, the freedom without U.S., without us. Uh, at Nancy Lindborg is where she tweets. Nancy, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Good morning, Tim. Can I say there's nothing like Halifax in November? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Sometime they have to hold that event in July. Yeah, uh, it would be nice, I guess. All right. This is an important event each year. Your takeaway, which strikes me that in the piece you put together, there are obviously always concerns about peace around the world and there are uh, questions about freedom. But it, it strikes me that you are um, sounding a somewhat more optimistic tone about what you've been seeing take place around the world. I am. And, you know, there was an interesting discussion at the forum this year that has not been there in previous years, and that is looking at this wave of people power um, demonstrations and protests around the globe. And there's a lot of gloom about the decline of democracy. You know, we've seen 13 years in a row now of uh, democratic decline. And estimates of some 75 countries that have moved towards authoritarianism. But what we've also seen, particularly this year, 2019, has been a remarkable wave of people taking to the streets in organized ways to protest corruption, cronyism, repression, you know, really demanding, and in some cases making remarkable impact uh, that their government's uh, be more responsive to the needs of the people. And I'm going to quote what you had written in far-flung locales from Hong Kong, Kazakhstan, Venezuela, and Algeria to Poland and Sudan. Citizens have used nonviolent action to push back against corruption, cronyism, rigid laws, and to overthrow ossified autocrats. What strikes me as a really important is next is that these movements, you say, tell a different and deeply encouraging story of a democratic resurgence that probably won't be driven by partner nations, heads of state, or U.S. leadership. Instead, it will come from the people themselves. That sounds pretty powerful. Well, it is powerful, and it is what we've been seeing. And that list of locales that you read is actually even longer um, if you include places like Indonesia, Russia, uh, you know, Lebanon. Uh, and what we're seeing is that um, in the past 30 years, there's been an increased understanding of what makes these kinds of uh, people power movements most effective. Uh, at USIP, we have a nonviolent action um, practice that's led by Dr. Maria Stefan and a partner, the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, that has been doing the research on why nonviolent movements are twice as effective as violent movements, how they much more frequently frequently lead to a sustained democracy, um, and what it takes to really do that successfully. I mean, it's not just a spontaneous happening. It's, it's discipline, it's strategy and tactics on the part of the movement leaders. And that's what we're seeing in places like Sudan, in Algeria, um, Lebanon. It's evolving as we watch in Hong Kong. 
still there is a spark somewhere that develops, right, Nancy? And I wonder, you obviously have to have information. We take a look at North Korea, for example, which shuts off the outside world. You cannot, in North Korea, get access to the Internet. So you don't know how the other half lives, if you'll pardon the expression, the use of a cliche. But I wonder how it is that these countries, number one, have individuals who are inspired by what they see in terms of freedom outside of their own country and is there an example that they are trying to follow is there a model that they're trying to achieve or is it different in each case well i think it's a combination and clearly you know these kinds of movements are sparked both by extreme grievance uh whether it's what we saw during 30 years of a very repressive regime in sudan where uh, the leader, Omar Bashir, systematically repressed whole sections of that country, whether it was Darfur or the Blue Nile. And, you know, there were repeated efforts by people to organize and overthrow him, both violently and nonviolently. And and it finally, uh, through a combination of events uh, and extraordinary leadership by by the, the professionals, uh, in the country was successful in April in dislodging that autocrat. But we also, and I think we see where people look around the globe and they see that it's happening elsewhere. And as you just said, Tim, there's a sense of hope and inspiration. And that inspires them to think that, well, maybe they could make a difference. But it's not always, and I think this is important, it's not, it's not singularly for regime change. And so you know, in Poland, they were seeking a, 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 a freer judiciary. Um, even Beijing, they're not looking to overthrow anything. They have very clear, specific demands related to the agreement with Britain and to the, the level of, of autonomy that was negotiated. So it's, it's people saying to their governments, pay attention. Uh, you are there to serve us. And uh, these protests make it more costly for repressive governments to maintain that kind of repressive control. Nancy Lindborg with us. Nancy is the United States Institute of Peace president and CEO just back from the recently concluded Halifax uh, Security Forum that took place in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The, the interesting part about this, I was looking at some of the quotes that came out of it. This is obviously a lot of important people, yourself included in the group, people like the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien was there. But a, a quote from Senator Tim Kaine, there was also quotes from Senator Jim Reich, who is the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, who was talking about China, and Senator Tim Kaine, who said, there are two poles in American thought, isolationism and engagement. I believe the next president of the U.S., Democrat or Republican, is going to want to significantly re-engage in multilateral institutions. What struck me about a lot of these quotes, Nancy, is that there is a sense of bipartisanship when it comes to national security and international security for the country. Absolutely. And, you know, we see that in our U.S. Congress that despite the polls that Senator Kaine mentioned, the predominant poll even today remains a sense of engagement around the world, but possibly a different level of engagement or a different kind of engagement. Um, I think there's agreement of the need for, you know, you know partnership and maybe a, a more balanced burden sharing. But uh, the Halifax National Security Forum definitely had bipartisan participation from senators and members of Congress uh, and also, as I started by saying, you know, the notion of what constitutes national security continues to evolve. And when you talk about 2019 as the, as the year of people power, of all of these protests and movements around the globe, 
it, it does underscore the fact that security includes uh, governments that are responsive to the needs of their people, which is fundamental to democracy. And so that sense of a community of democracies uh, and, and alliances with the demo- community of democracies equals a very important pole of our national security. I did want to ask one question that is relative to the the, the, the policy and the, the recent revelation that China had a, a cache of, if you will, a documents that indicates that they have been repressive in their particular country. Not a real piece of news to us, but it brought, and I would like you to listen for a moment to the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, yesterday. I think it confirms what we've been saying here at the State Department and the United States government for some time now about what's taking place there, the very significant human rights abuses. I think it confirms it, shows that it that uh, it's not random and it is intentional and that it is ongoing. And so I think those papers simply confirm that. I think the world can see that. Nancy, I wonder how does the U.S. engage with China on something like this while it is simultaneously trying to deal with trade issues with a country like that? I think you have to hold both truths, you know, that we have economic ties with China, but that we also stand for human rights. And whether it's the Hong Kong Freedom and Democracy Act that just passed with enormous uh, bipartisan majorities on the, on the Hill, or the outrage over the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that, that there needs to be that level of nuance um, and holding both to be true when dealing with uh, a country like China. But the import, without question, and, and we hear this, including from, uh, you know, all sides of the, both sides of the aisle on the Hill, that the United States is all, it's important that we stand up for human rights and that we make that a clear touchstone in the way that we engage globally. Nancy Lindborg, thank you for joining us today. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll look forward to more conversations down the road. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Nancy Lindborg, United States Institute of Peace President and CEO, just back from the Halifax International Security Forum. Some thoughts on international freedoms and the uprising, if you will, grassroots efforts at freedom around the world, despite the fact that authoritarianism seems to be on the rise. There seems to be more on that side of the uh, of the equation as well. By the way, tweeting at Nancy Lindborg at Nancy L-I-N-D-B-O-R-G. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.